Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, December 25th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Yero, wishing everyone a happy holiday. It's a festive winter. We've got a very special wintry fish for you today. It's the Snowflake Moray. A very big welcome to our guests, Dr. Rita Maita, who's an evolutionary biologist from the University of California, Santa Cruz. We're looking forward to learning from you. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Okay, so more eels kind of have a classic look, at least to me, kind of the way they hold themselves, they move their mouth. You can be like, okay, that's a moray eel. Um, can you describe moray eels in general in terms of how they look physically? And then specifically, what sets a snowflake moray apart from those others in terms of appearance? Morays are near and dear to my heart. They are my favorite group of fishes. And they're in this larger order called the anguilliforms. They are characterized by having a really elongate body plan. In fact, they're very snake-like, which is one of the reasons I appreciate them so much. So they exude a lot of mucus and many clades of anguilliforms have lost or reduced their fins and morays or the clade muranidae is what we refer to them collectively. They have a confluent dorsal fin, which means that they have a fin that starts just behind their head and kind of wraps around their tail and onto the ventral side of their body and stops at the vent. But then that's it. They don't have any other fins. What's the coloration like on these fish? It's called the snowflake moray. What does their patterning or colors look like? Yeah. So it's funny, right? Like you would think that the patterns look like snowflakes, right? That's how they got their name. But I would beg to disagree with that. And maybe there is a lot of difference in patterns. So maybe, you know, some snowflake morays look like they had a pattern of like a starburst or snowflake-like patterns on them, but they're usually blotched and they're this dark purple or black on a white background. There's a lot of modeling and some really pretty yellow that you see on some individuals within that dark splotch. And the dark splotches are repeated across the entire body of the moray. They got cool little uh, tubular nostrils. What's their function? So the tubular nostrils, they have an inlet and an outlet. So they'll sniff in water and that water and whatever chemical cues goes into their olfactory boule, the network of tissue that they have in their noses. And it really does help them to figure out where to go to find their Hmm. prey. And it sounds like their function is to smell just like (laughs) ours. They also have a really interesting face and their mouth always catches me. Can you describe that a little bit as well? Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that you were just describing about mores that I think captures most people's attention, especially when they're at the aquarium or they're underwater, is that mores have long jaws. And when you look into their jaws, which you can't help because they're always like opening and closing their mouths really slowly, right? They have really toothy mouths. So like lots of sharp and diverse teeth and they are slowly opening and closing their jaws to pump water 
into their mouth cavity and then into this really cool pouch region that we have that we refer to as their gill pouch. It actually houses their gills and it can hold water. So there's a little siphon on either side or a little, you know, opening on either side that's soft. So unlike the opercle or the bony opening of most fishes, you know, that abducts and adducts to open and close so that the water can flow through. These pouches can open and close as well, but they're very oh. soft and they can expand. Okay. That's interesting. I normally think about fish that got these big mouths, these big teeth as kind of being predatory fish, but normally predatory fish, they kind of use this vacuum feeding to suck down prey. But if you don't have those opercles, how are these fish able to feed? There are lots of predatory fishes that don't rely so much on, on suction. So suction works the best when you're a fish with a really small rounded mouth. But these predatory fishes, so, you know, talking in general, something like a barracuda, for example, or like a lizard fish, right? They may rely less on suction and more on approaching the prey really fast and engulfing it or ambushing the prey. Mores, very similarly, are not using suction to pull prey in. Rather, they pursue prey and just bite prey like a barracuda would. Within the morays, there seems to be lots of different tooth structure kind of ranging from sharp and pointy to dull crushing teeth. And I'm curious what the snowflake moray has in particular and what that says about what it feeds upon. Yeah, Guy, that's a really great question. Most other morays have really long jaws and really sharp teeth, whereas the snowflake moray is one of those moray species that have short jaws and they have shortened, flattened, sometimes round pebble-like teeth mm -hmm. that are meant for crushing. Many of the moray species that I look at that have the sharp teeth, sometimes they'll have crab fragments in their stomach. And then you can tell the teeth in the oral jaws are not a very great quality. They will lose their teeth and they'll grow teeth back. Mm -hmm. But you see a lot of chipped teeth, right? Or broken okay. teeth. Whereas in the snowflake moray, they have small rounded dentition and it is really made for eating hard things like crunching on crabs. Can you tell us a little more about the pharyngeal jaws of moray Yeah, eels? that's a great question. And it's one of the more interesting components of moray eels. So all fishes have two sets of jaws. So their okay. oral jaws and then a second set of jaws in their throat, their pharyngeal jaws. And mores are really interesting because the pharyngeal jaws are actually located behind their head and they're attached by really long muscles. Whereas in most other fishes um, that are not elongate, the pharyngeal jaws um, are within the skull and they're attached by the same muscles, but the muscles are a lot shorter. Um, so the pharyngeal jaws of most fishes have movements, but the movements are pretty short. And they are powerful movements to help fishes in general macerate prey once they get it in their oral jaws. So prey enters the mouth and then with the help of the flow of water, they move into the pharyngeal jaws and then the pharyngeal jaws will move the prey, push it back into the esophagus. Or if the teeth are specialized in some fishes, like they're grinders, right? They might have those pebble-like teeth. They might grind prey and take time processing prey. 
and then push prey into the esophagus. Well, mores, their pharyngeal jaws have pretty sharp teeth. And so they are actually used for swallowing prey. Once a moray grabs prey in the oral jaws, the pharyngeal jaws protract into the oral cavity, grab the prey a second time, and then retract the prey. And then the esophagus is really stretchy. And basically the prey gets packed into the esophagus and moved into the stomach. That's cool. This reminded me of the Mariana Snellfish guy with the the isopods that can like burrow through their skin and they hold them in the second set. Yeah, that's yeah, creepy yeah, but that's, cool. Reminds me of Alien. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. What kind of work have you done researching the behaviors of these fish? Moray eel behavior is really interesting. And specifically, I've had a lot of fun over the years researching the behavior of the snowflake moray. So because the snowflake moray feeds on crabs mostly, it's durophagus. Durophagus is a term for eating hard prey. And so the snowflake moray is really interesting because many durophagus morays like the snowflake moray have been shown to come out of the water or in the inner tidal and feed on intertidal crabs or even land crabs. Mm. And I had seen some mores in Hawaii, um, specifically the snowflake moray coming out in the intertidal to feed. And I thought, oh, it'd be really interesting if we could elicit this behavior in the lab and really study if the moray eel can feed on land. Even mud skippers, right? Those really cute They're fish cute. that yeah, hang out in the mud and use their pectoral fins to prop themselves up. Like they will grab insects, but they either have to go into the water to swallow those little invertebrates hmm. or they actually hold water in their mouths and then they will spit the water out onto their prey item that they've captured also in their mouths and then use suction to suck it up. So even a fish that spends a lot of time on land needs water in order to feed. There were lots of these really cool observations also on YouTube of, of mores coming into the inner tidal or making some short forays on land. And there were some very quick observations also in the literature. And so this really piqued my interest because my question was, well, are they then like mudskippers? Can they grab their prey on land, which is a really cool feat, right? We to see a fish oh, come yeah. up on land and grab Oh, yeah. And those crabs in Hawaii, they're pretty fast, too. I've seen them on the rocks scuttling about. Exactly. And then what do they do once they grab the prey, right? Do they have to go back in the water to feed? I mean, we assume that they're probably more comfortable in the water feeding, but we were really interested in the functional morphology of feeding here. Can they swallow prey on land, especially since they have these second set of jaws, the pharyngeal jaws? that allow them to swallow. And so their swallowing mechanics are, they're more mechanical and they're less reliant on water, right? The pharyngeal jaws don't need water 
to grab the prey because they protract into the oral cavity, grab the prey that second time and retract the prey. That's cool. So if there's a fish that doesn't need to rely on water to capture and swallow their prey, it would be the A. moray eel. And the Durophagus morays were a really natural model to study. So we built these platforms in the lab in a aquarium in a 20 gallon tank. And we had a couple of um, very young snowflake morays. And we had these platforms that were about a um, 35 degree or 45 degree angle. And we taught them to come up on the platform. They'd have to cross this water to land transition, make their way up into onto the incline and then onto a flat platform to feed. Mm -hmm. And some individuals would take months to do this. And then a couple of our individuals would just take a couple weeks to learn Mm -hmm. how to get up on the platform and feed. And it was really neat. So at first they would grab the prey from the platform and then they would immediately want to just turn their bodies and go down into the water. I just infer that it's probably safer for them. That's, that's what they would want to do. But then when they got used to it and we started putting the prey further and further away from the incline. So they were like practically half their body or more was up on the platform. They would just stay there and you would watch them grab the prey and swallow the prey. Okay, cool. There were a couple individuals where we had such amazing success with where we would put multiple prey pieces on the platform. And so they would grab the one, we would watch them eat it, and then they would move over and grab another one and eat the whole thing on the platform. Okay, that's, yeah, that's really cool. How, you know, that kind of transition from the wild to captivity to understand that behavior. That's really neat. Yeah, it was really fun. Ongong, everyone. It's time for a minute with Maria. With me, Maria Dosel. I'm calling in from Chogyang Lands, and I wanted to put a word in your ear about evolutionary biology. We heard Dr. Rita Mehta talking a bit about evolutionary biology with these snowflake morays, and it's so interesting. When I was looking up snowflake eels and snowflake morays, I came across this article, and the headline was, when a squid goes on land to eat fish from a clamp, that's a moray. And I immediately had to click it because it really caught my interest. And I'm so happy that we found Dr. Rita Meta and that we're talking to her about this wonderful snowflake eel. I really like hearing about her work and also about how these morays have evolved to start eating squid outside on land. That's pretty amazing how they can swip swap from water onto land. So amazing how the snowflake moray can swallow fish on land with its set of teeth that it has down its throat and the way that it's made. It's incredible how it's created. It's so wild how these animals can evolve. Makes me wonder when we hear her talking about this, where is it going to go? What can we expect to come from evolutionary biology? Where is it going to take us? Behavior-wise, I was looking around a little bit online, and this wasn't specific to snowflakes necessarily, but I was seeing some different observations of fish working together 
to hunt. So working with more eels, I thought that was really neat. So it was groupers recruiting mores to help them. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I really admire those studies. Researchers have discovered by just scuba diving that mores and also other eels like snake eels will work together with groupers and and other fish species to help them flush out prey from crevices. You can imagine a grouper slowly stalking prey and then all of a sudden it makes some fast movements and the prey just swims into a coral crevice and hides, right? And then if you have a moray with you, you know, a moray is like a flexible pipe that can swim through the crevices and it can actually go in there and flush out the prey. So that alone is really cool that the moray can help get prey that another deep bodied fish couldn't, right? Because that deep body fish can't get into the crevice. But I think one of the cooler observations is the fact that these fish are signaling to one another. Like the grouper is telling the moray, you know, go in there, go, go try and get that fish. And I'm sure if the moray is successful, it's probably just going to eat the fish in the crevice. Yeah, that's what I was but, wondering. Yeah. What's in it for the moray? You know, if the grouper's getting the food, what's the moray get out of it? Yeah, so that's a really great question. I remember them calling this cooperative hunting. And what's in it for the moray could be that the grouper is not always finishing the prey or the grouper is like a messy eater. Maybe the prey is actually like bigger than the grouper's mouth and it's got to shake the prey and break it off into pieces. And then the moray can have those discards. We've talked a lot about what these fish look like, kind of their behavior, but what what do they feel like? They look like they'd be really soft and kind of maybe squishy. What's their texture? They're really hard to handle. Your typical snowflake moray is about two and a half to three inches in diameter, maybe about a foot long. Okay. And so you can easily try and grab for it and it'll slip right through your hand. So they're, I would describe them as like pretty silky and slippery. So do they actually have more vertebrae than other fish? Or are they longer? Or what's the deal with that? That's a really great question. So another reason I love to watch more is they're really elegant underwater, right? They've got this beautiful sinusoidal pattern. You know, they move in just very graceful waves like a sea snake would. And one of the ways in which they can do that is by having flexibility of their axial skeleton or their vertebral column. And so to gain that um, flexibility, what most fishes have done is they've increased the number of vertebrae. So they have many, many vertebrae. Some mores, like a ribbon moray, can have close to 300 vertebrae. Oh, wow. Whereas I think the majority of eels have anywhere from 150 to around 220 vertebrae in total. Very cool. You mentioned that you like that they're snake-like. And I, I know you're an evolutionary biologist. What's your interest in the moray specifically? I really love the uh, thinking about the evolution of the repeated evolution of body plans. Mm-hmm. Morays are not the only fish group that has evolved a snake-like body plan. So we see this in gunnels and, and prickleback fishes that are way more derived 
We see this also in an ancient group of fishes. The polypterids, like rope fishes of the genus Erpidoichthys, are quite snake-like. So it is a body plan that has uh, repeatedly evolved. When you see this repeated evolution of a body plan, you often wonder, like, what what's the benefit of having this body mm-hmm. plan? How come it's repeated so many times? And you tend to see this repeated body plan in fishes that live in really complex, like rocky reefs or coral crevices. That's one of the things that I think is really fascinating about eels. And behaviorally, this presents all sorts of interesting questions and challenges for them. Having this elongate body plan similar to a snake, it's like, how do you sustain this elongate large mass that's spread across a pretty big area through a really small opening, right? The mouth. It's like, you've got to think of some really interesting ways in order to feed yourself to be a, to be able to support your mass. Okay. With this body plan, I know that we've talked about some fish like flatfish and halibuts where they'll have their whole gut sort of up at the front of the body and then it's all kind of just muscle all the way back in these morays how far up are the internal organs and then how far back are they having to transport nutrients strictly to the muscle in terms of feeding the stomach is like 70 percent of a moray once you have them open their mouths right i mean you can imagine you could look straight down and the stomach is basically so the esophagus leads to the stomach and then that stomach pretty much is about an inch away from the vent of the fish. So it takes up a huge component of the moray's body. And if you're just looking at any moray, I would say that the tail is just under 50% of the total length of any moray eel. So it's really impressive. Like the tail makes up almost half of the body. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the body alone, it's all stomach. Okay. Wow. Thank you. Very cool. How did you first get into working with fish and working with eels and morays in particular? Yeah, I really got into looking at fishes in particular because of that elongate body plan. So I was studying snakes. Okay. And I, I loved learning about the feeding behavior of snakes. And so Yeah, just thinking about, again, like, well, how do other elongate animals catch their prey when snakes have evolved such an incredible skull, right? It's really mobile. It's what we call like highly kinetic, lots of moving parts and lots of sharp teeth. And um, you see very similar things in the moray. So the moray skull doesn't have nearly the same movement as the snake skull, but you've got the pharyngeal jaws that are highly mobile. So that makes up for it in terms of swallowing prey. Okay. Can you contrast the movement, like how snakes move on land versus how these fish move in the water with their muscles? Yeah, that's a really good comparison. So snakes have a diversity of movements, um, but the more common one is lateral undulation, which is very similar to many elongate fishes. So they'll have these sinusoidal or wave-like patterns across their bodies. And we've actually looked at um, a handful of 
moray species moving on the wet substrate totally emerge from the water and they have very similar lateral undulation to snakes. What kinds of habitats are moray eels using? The diversity is really amazing when it comes to where they live. So there's some temperate moray species, right? So I am here in central California in Santa Cruz, and I travel down to Southern California to the beautiful kelp forest down in Southern California to study our single moray eel species, the California moray. And so you can have morays living in kelp forests, in the rocky beds or the rubble. You can have morays living in um, crevices of coral reefs. You can have some really small morays hiding in seagrasses. And there are some morays that actually live in the mud. So they mm -hmm. are mostly burrowed. Or, you know, they'll live in like the muck. So that's a, a really fun type of diving that you would do in Indonesia in certain places, right? You go muck diving and you okay. might be able to go with a, a really great camera that takes um, pictures of really small things. And you might be lucky enough to see parts of a moray eel protruding from the mud. Okay. And where's wow. the snowflake moray found? Like on a map and habitat wise, if it's different than that. So the snowflake moray really does live in coral reef crevices. From what I've seen, you could see it in the Eastern Pacific and it's found all throughout Indonesia as well. So it's got a pretty wide distribution. So is this fish commonly held in aquaria or is it mostly just observed in the wild? There's not a lot of moray eels that are maintained in aquaria. Sometimes they're just hard to find in the wild and there's incredible diversity, but the snowflake moray, Echidna nebulosa, is one of those morays that is very popular in uh, the pet trade. And I think it's just because it's a pretty docile eel. It tends to get along with a lot of different fishes is how it's characterized. And I've had many in different aquaria and for the most part, I've had great luck. And then sometimes, you know, every now and again, Again, there's a fight that breaks out and I lose a non-moray because of okay. the snowflake moray. <laughs> so if someone was in California, and I know they don't have the snowflake morays there, but they do have the California moray. Is that something that people might be able to see in like intertidal pools or do they have to go offshore or into the kelp forest to see those? You might actually be lucky enough to see some small morays in tide pools. In particular places, it's a fun outing for people to do. So around Catalina Island, there's some tide pools in the coves where you can definitely see some small mores come up. Okay. And if you're in Hawaii, <laughs> is there places where people could go to see snowflake mores? Yeah, there's a lot of places where people can go to see snowflake mores. They are very common in Hawaii. What do you see as like the next biggest research questions that need to be answered regarding morays? Oh, that's a really great question. One of the things that we're trying to understand is how big they eat and how often they consume their food and also just the abundance of these predators, right? Like where around the world do we see larger populations and of what species? 
what sorts of roles they play in different regions, I think is a really important question. And also how the warming of our climate affects their feeding physiology, because we know that temperature affects fish feeding physiology period. And we've actually done some cool studies in the lab where we've put the California moray in warmer temperatures. So temperatures that it might, if it were to forage in the intertidal or like in tide pools. So water that is around 68, 70 degrees. And what we see is that more active, it moves around a lot more to catch its prey. And it is able to not around prey more and for longer periods of time. Mm -hmm. So their foraging behavior gets more aggressive in warmer waters. Interesting. Do you have any advice for students or young folks that are interested in getting into research in the fish world? Yeah, there's so many fish out there and the diversity is incredible. And fishes play an inc- a very important role in our marine and freshwater ecosystems, as well as they're, they're a bridge in terms of water to land transitions. So there's a lot of fishes that make use of that intermediate environment. So mm-hmm. there's a lot to study. And yeah, there's a lot of interesting behaviors that we need to study more of and, and uncover. Why should people care about this fish? So maybe mores in general and the snowflake mores specifically. Snowflake mores are really beautiful and add to the biodiversity of our ocean. I think it's really amazing that you've got this fish that can actually make use of the marine environment as well as the intertidal zone. Um, And, you know, it is left to see you've, you definitely have a fish that's transferring nutrients from the terrestrial environment or the intertidal back into the marine environment. And like I said, I, it's a beautiful fish that just adds to the biodiversity of the coral reefs. And we learn so many things from mores in general, just about how fishes that are elongate and have very few fins or modified their body plan to live in small crevices? Like how do they make a living? In some parts of the world, mores are consumed, right? They are part of the marine resources that people rely on to survive. So yeah, they play a really important role in the, in the ecosystem. Yeah. Awesome. Anything we've missed that you'd like to say, or I think it's really fun to have, you know, a podcast where you focus on fishes. And, you know, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife um, is a really important program to lots of researchers. So we we really appreciate the work that you do. Okay, well, thank you so much. This was fascinating. And yeah, we're really pleased you could join us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the snowflake moray eel. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.